0: Sir! So, you can't go! All the
1: plants are gonna die! I'm gonna take a bath.
2: Bad dates. I'll alert the media.
1: Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil! Don't touch it! The
0: name's Pliskin.
1: No why Hang on!
2: Welcome to a very special vintage video Patreon pick where our patrons at the $100 tier are invited to request any pre-80s title they'd like for a custom review from the vintage video team. Overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly.
1: I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells.
2: And today, Carlos Mota has asked us to review Lifeboat, released January 28th, 1944. It was written by Joe Swirling, based on a story by John Steinbeck, with uncredited work from Alfred Hitchcock and Ben Hecht, directed by Hitchcock, and released by 20th Century Fox. This was Hitchcock's only film with 20th Century Fox, originally as a part of a two-picture deal, but the contract was dropped after a contentious production on this film. You'd think an entire film shot in one small floating set in a studio tank would be cheaper and easier, but it was not. (laughs) Hitchcock's insistence that they shoot in sequence did not help either, because they needed the entire cast around for the whole production. Ooh. It did not pay for itself, which is a rarity for a Hitchcock outing.
1: Well, even if you shot it out of sequence, wouldn't you really still need a lot of the actors?
2: Not if one of them dies in the first 10 minutes. You don't need that one around for the rest of the time. It seems like that that actually makes it easier. But but, the, the, but
1: then you make up for it on the other part.
2: But the problem is that they were shooting, like, basically 360 all day so mm. you needed to have this boat full of all the people you couldn't just separate it into hmm. sections
0: the, the reason that you tend to shoot things in sequence like that is when there is a big reveal and you want your actors not to know
2: no i think in this case it was he wanted them to realistically portray people who are in a terrible situation over time oh, okay mm. so
0: he just abused them more and more and more through the. yeah end that's of the film. that's like yeah. hitchcock's
2: middle name basically
1: like <laughs> now, now i'm picturing like hitchcock himself throwing the buckets of water oh, water wait for it wait for it <laughs> it's so
2: terrible here hitchcock initially pitched a story to several novelists to expand on including james hilton and ernest hemingway on the way to john steinbeck an earlier draft by McKinley Cantor was rejected by hitchcock steinbeck's approach was to write the story as a book and then sell the rights to fox but his own publishers considered it an inferior work and refused publication. So Joe Swirling and Ben Hecht were brought on to adapt his manuscript into a scriptuscript. script <laughs> Steinbeck still made 50000 for his draft of the film. As a result, this is considered Steinbeck's first story written directly for the screen. Hmm. But Swirling did most of the work and Ben Hecht just changed the ending for them. Steinbeck also voiced a vocal opposition to the adaptation, and in particular its treatment of the men who worked below decks, and what he considered, correctly, to be a stock African-American character. He lobbied unsuccessfully to have his name removed from the final product. Stage actor Canada Lee, who plays Joe, was cast first, and the cast was meant to be a group of unknowns. Lee was reportedly given free rein to make adjustments to his own lines over the course of shooting. As you might've guessed, the constantly rocking set led to a very seasick cast. The original Gus actor, Murray Alper, left ill after two weeks of shooting before he was replaced by William Bendix. The original DP, Arthur Miller, not that Arthur Miller, (laughs) quit mid-shoot to be replaced by Glenn McWilliams. Alice McKenzie actress, Mary Anderson, was rendered seriously ill multiple times, adding to already troublesome delays in the production schedule. Even the top-billed star, Tallulah Bankhead, was stricken with pneumonia twice during production. But the worst anyone endured was Hume Cronin, who was thrown from the ship during a storm scene and pinned beneath one of the water activators used to churn the water around them.
0: Oh, my God. He
2: cracked two ribs and very nearly drowned before he was fished up by a set lifeguard.
0: Oh, my God.
2: It's insane. To explain the absence of score during most of the film, Hitchcock reportedly said, where would the orchestra come from? In response, (laughs) Hugo Friedhofer, who composed the score that bookends the narrative, asked, where did the cameras come from? (laughs) At the time of the film's release, America was in the thick of war with Germany, and the presiding controversy in the public response to the film was that the German character of Willie was overhumanized to the point of hurting the war effort. Bankhead and Hitchcock both took issue with the complaint, suggesting that the moral of the story is clearly don't trust Nazis no matter what. Yeah.
0: What which is actually kind of interesting because I thought I thought the point was gonna be, hey, we're all in this boat together kind right. of thing. Mm-hmm. And then it, you know, when it takes a different turn, I was like, Oh, okay, so that's not what you were going right. for here.
2: Hitchcock also added, quote, I always respect my villain building him into a redoubtable character that will make my hero or thesis more admirable in defeating him or it. A year after the film's release, playwright Sidney Easton sued Fox, claiming Hitchcock plagiarized his unpublished play, Lifeboat No. 13, claiming he gave a copy to actor Lee Whipper, who must have shared a draft with Steinbeck, but Hitchcock maintained that the story he developed came from testimonies of real-life wartime shipwreck survivors. Bankhead reprised the role of Constance Porter for a 1950 radio play of the same story. In 1993, the film was remade as a sci-fi TV movie called Life Pod. It takes place in 2169 and tells the story of a group stranded in a life pod in the depths of space. It stars Robert Loggia, CCH Pounder, and Ron Silver, who also directed it. And I watched it yesterday. Oh, did you really? And uh, it's fine. It's okay. Um... They make a very interesting twist to the story, which is that there isn't a Nazi character. Yeah, <laughs> there, th- that no, makes would, sense would have for that space. space. <laughs> be I mean, it's more
0: interesting if there was a Nazi character yeah, in space. Yeah, it's
2: like that's crazy that Ron Silver knew that Nazis were going to make a comeback. <laughs> who would have guessed that in 1993? <laughs> but uh, what's really interesting is that there's not a identifiable outsider, so they don't know who is sabotaging the life pod.
0: Uh, oh, do they all blame each other for being sus?
2: everybody's sus yeah they it's basically among us the movie yeah
0: (laughs) do they eject people from the pot yeah oh (laughs) Oh, god
2: it's very among us actually holy shit (laughs) (laughs) if you remade the 1993 version of lifeboat you would get you would get sued by the among us Uh,
1: especially when they're trying to do tasks like slide a card through a thing
2: oh my god that's in there no it's not The film starts with all the credits over footage of a ship sinking. I noticed a credit here for Guy Pierce doing the makeup. (laughs) Not that Guy Pierce, obviously. As the last smokestack disappears into the sea, we are left with nothing but churning ocean water and smoke. We see a box floating in the water that says Amcross Fragile with a Red Cross logo. It looks like supplies shipping from New York to Great Britain. We see a bunch of floating fruits, a duffel bag, an issue of the New Yorker magazine, a deck of playing cards and a chessboard, all floating on the water. We also hear voices in the distance, and the camera lands on a man floating face down in the water.
1: It's kind of it's kind of like some symbolism here going on with just the debris, you know? Yeah, like you know the the playing cards, chess game. Uh, the it's because they're constantly reading like the newspaper. Yeah, the,
2: the, the, I think there's supposed to be something representative of each person. Mm. So the the Amcross box is the medical right uh, woman and then you have the cards because the guys are constantly playing cards chess is like strategy mm-hmm. of possibly the willy character i guess the last thing would be the willy character because we end on a, a drowned german mm-hmm. who uh the tag on the back of his uniform indicates that he's a part of the u-boat 78s crew the camera tilts up to reveal more debris on the surface and then we dissolve through the fog to find a lifeboat with a single passenger Talula bankhead as constance porter Or Connie, as we'll come to know her. She sits rather calmly with her luggage and puffs on a cigarette, awaiting assistance. She notices a man, John Kovac, in the water, swimming toward her and collecting paper cash bills when he sees them floating in the water. She pulls out a small film camera to record the moment. She pulls Kovac on board her lifeboat and in the process, dirties her hand with the same oil slick that coats him head to toe. She asks him if he's seen charcoal, Her clever nickname for the African-American steward, whose name is Joe. He apparently helped her on this lifeboat, but Kovac hasn't seen him. Kovac was working in the engine room when their boat was hit by a torpedo. She instructs him to collect several things floating by in the water, including a chair and a cap.
0: What are we worrying about this junk for? Let's take a look around for some of the others before that U-boat surfaces again and sees us.
2: She informs him that both ships destroyed each other and the U-boat won't be resurfacing. She got footage of everything that happened on her film camera including the Germans shooting down other lifeboats. Yeah. yeah. He finally realizes she is Constance Porter, the famed journalist. She told the man she got footage of both ships going down and mid-story she notices a baby's bottle full of milk floating in the water and thinks it would make a great insert in her footage.
0: Look! That's a perfect touch.
2: The man swats at the bottle with a racket he found in the water to destroy it. She's annoyed to have her shot ruined by the man, but he is disgusted by her instinct to film the bottle in the first place. What did you do that for? Why don't you wait for the baby to float by and photograph that? They hear another Allied survivor calling for help, and when Kovac stands to steer the boat toward the approaching survivor, he knocks Porter's camera into the ocean, destroying all her priceless footage.
0: I think his attitude here towards her is really unfair. Like I get it. Yeah. Like it's a tragedy. Yeah. But there are It's the, important to document the it. whole point of having journalists at you know, in war zones is to document the atrocities, not yeah. not that they're cold hearted.
2: I don't think he knocked this camera out of her hands on purpose. No. But he doesn't care about it because he cares more about the survivors. So he doesn't feel bad about doing it. But I I don't think he did it intentionally. Yet.
0: Yeah. But I'm just saying everybody has a role and this yes. was her role.
2: The additional survivor he's just pulled into the boat is Stanley Sparks Garrett, played by Hume Cronin. Sparks says there are more survivors in the water and they should keep moving. When he notices a cap he recognizes in the lifeboat, Sparks calls into the fog for a Miss Mackenzie and blows a whistle. Someone replies in the distance calling to Stanley, which is Sparks' first name. We see three survivors standing on a small chunk of debris in the water. Constance Porter recognizes one of them as a man named Ritt, short for C.J. Rittenhouse. One of the other two is a man with an injured leg named Gus Smith, and another woman helps the injured man on board. She must be Miss McKenzie. Alice McKenzie appears to be some kind of medical professional and takes care to help Gus with his injured leg. Kovac gives Rit the cash he found floating on his way to the lifeboat when he overhears the man talking about winning at cards and his prize going into the water. Miss McKenzie pulls out some shrapnel from Gus's leg and offers it to him as a souvenir. He tosses it overboard. The man is very concerned that he might be sent home with a bum leg from this injury because he's an accomplished dancer. Gus and Porter try to make a deal for some alcohol, but Mackenzie advises against it. Suddenly, they hear another voice calling from the fog.
0: It's charcoal!
2: Porter spots Joe, the steward, a.k.a. Charcoal, in the water, carrying a woman over one shoulder and a dead baby over the other shoulder. The, uh, The steward, Charcoal is played by a black guy which is why she's calling him charcoal and that's ridiculous and it it wasn't in the manuscript that steinbeck turned in that's
0: Oh, really? Yeah. I also realized that what they have against Connie here is probably more about her wealth than her status as a journalist.
2: Right. Because yes. like even- She's in a fur coat. She has all of her luggage. Right. She, she didn't, she was never in the water.
0: She's not actively trying to save anybody right. here. And when her camera goes in and she talks about it, like I would have given a million dollars for that. Why didn't you jump in and grab it? You know, like like it wasn't- Yeah, it
2: wasn't unsalvageable. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, but no, yeah, nothing is, nothing is so precious to her as to try to work for it.
2: I think when she says I would give a million dollars, it's the same as if- I drop something overboard, and I say, I would have paid $5 to not drop that overboard. It's like, I'm not going to get in the water for it. Yeah. Because a million dollars means nothing to me. Joe mentions that when he found her, it seemed like the woman was trying to drown her baby. A serious look from Mackenzie communicates that this child is beyond saving, but the mother still snatches the baby away.
0: Best let her have it. We'll wait till she's asleep.
2: It's like, you don't have to say that out loud. She's <laughs> right there. It's a small boat. Sparks seems familiar with the passenger, Mrs. Higley, and her child John. Apparently, she was in a state of shock before the ship even sank. Her name's Igley. She's bombed out in Bristol. One of them show shock cases sent to America. Her child was born in New York.
1: Said to me on the ship, I'm going home to show my husband the
2: baby. The injured man notices a pair of hands scraping their way over the side of the lifeboat, and when the man is pulled into it, he thanks them for saving his life.
0: Thank you, Shane.
2: Uh-oh. Porter has to translate for the German U-boat sailor, who will come to know as Willie, because she's the only one who speaks his language.
1: He said, thank you.
2: <laughs> oh, is that what he said? Thank you for translating. Oh,
0: Richard, you're so useful here.
2: Thank you, darling, thank you. That's a song I translated for you. <laughs> I guess I should have said darling in German. I don't know yeah. how to do that. The other passengers ask why he shelled their ship, and he assures them he was only following his captain's orders. He claims to be a lowly crew member, but Sparks calls BS already. Kovac insists on throwing the man overboard.
0: Throw him off. Have you gone out of your mind? Throw the Nazi buzzard overboard. That's out of the question, it's against the law. Whose law? We're on
2: our own here, we can make our own law.
0: Now, just a minute.
2: (laughs) Put it in the tea. Put him (laughs) in the water. Porter takes the German side surprisingly strongly, accepting that the man fired on an enemy ship just as any of them would have done if ordered to. I feel like if any of these passengers beside the shell-shocked woman had lost family in the attack, this Nazi would be dead right away. There's no way that they would all agree, okay, you sank the ship, but we're all fine, let's just go home. Kovac tells her this man shelled a ship with innocent passengers and even their lifeboats, which is not the same as war even though, as we've seen, the ship was transporting materials to support Britain in the war effort. Kovac is suddenly suspicious of Porter with her fur coat and fluent German. Kovac reiterates that he will dance a jig as soon as this German drowns, and Gus, the injured man, takes Kovac's side. He explains that his last name was Schmidt, but he had to change it because he was so ashamed of his own name. Sparks points out that the law dictates that prisoners of war be treated a certain way and not summarily executed. Mackenzie says she doesn't understand any of this killing talk because she only wants to help people. She agrees with Sparks' approach that they treat him according to the requirements of the Geneva Code. Porter says she will interrogate the German and someone points out it will make a lovely chapter in a book for her down the line. Suddenly, the shell-shocked woman notices her baby is dead and she tips forward dumping it into Willie's arms. But then, immediately, she starts swatting at him to steal the baby back. She cuddles it in her seat as though everything were fine. Some of the men on board start discussing the official prayer for burial at sea. Do you guys recall the last time we saw a burial at sea?
0: Was it Herbie? Nope. The Herbie movie? No. Nope. More recent than that.
2: <laughs> Seamen, do your duty. Uh,
1: Death Ship.
0: Until Almighty God, we commend her soul and we commit her body to the
2: deep. Herbie was more recent than death. Right. Um It wasn't a whole body. Ordinary people?
1: <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> I don't think that was a Ouch.
2: Oral, That was, that was <laughs> an accident. He went in alive, but then so did Herbie, I guess.
0: Uh, <laughs> Jaws, too?
2: It was just a hand. The hand? <laughs> close
0: oh it was the the messenger of death demonoid?
2: demonoid demonoid messenger of death earth to the sea ashes to the depths dust
0: to eternal rest in hope of no resurrection
2: they each take guesses at the proper prayer but of course Joe the African American stereotype is the only one who has it memorized
0: Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death I
2: will fear no evil The passengers sort all the available supplies on board and prepare to sleep for the night, with watchmen staying up in shifts to keep an eye on the enemy combatant, and perhaps each other. The shell-shocked mother wakes up and is surprised to find a mink coat draped over her to keep her warm in her sleep. Of course, everyone's on edge because they're waiting for her to notice that they've thrown her baby overboard while she was sleeping. Save that kid for jerky, guys. You don't know how long we're (laughs) gonna be out here.
0: Whoa, whoa. Just saying. What have you done with him? What did you do with my baby? Your baby's dead. Don't you remember?
2: Surprisingly, she doesn't completely freak out and begins calmly speaking to the ocean to reach her son. When she starts to lean overboard as if to join him, the other passengers decide to tie her up so she doesn't kill herself. At daybreak, Sparks awakens to find Rit also asleep. It turns out the German was awake alone. Rit asks how much they might have drifted in the night and Sparks tells him that with the anchor down they should hold pretty well in place. He's actually been shipwrecked twice before and the longer time he spent 43 days at sea awaiting rescue. Though on that particular voyage the lifeboat was well stocked compared to this one. They try to put together a water breaker to keep potable water in but they fail and are destroyed by the rough seas. Even their compass was somehow destroyed and it sounds like Sparks is hinting at sabotage. When Constance is awakened, she complains about the bitter cold and wishes she didn't give her mink coat up, at which point they all realize that the shell-shocked woman has jumped overboard wearing it. All that's left of her is a rope she was tied up in, hanging over the side of the boat. Her empty chair is sitting in the middle of it. So she either killed herself, trying to get to her kid, or, or the German killed her over. in the night. Yeah. yeah. But
0: either way, so the rope that she was tied up with is taut. It looks hot. yeah. Yeah. And... I know this is terrible, but I feel like I would have pulled it back up and salvaged the coat because you just need all these sort of supplies, right?
2: Is that what they're implying though that that she's on the other end of that rope? I thought yeah, so. I think so.
0: I mean, because one of the guys I, I don't I think it's Joe maybe or so, so, somebody takes a knife and cuts it.
2: Yes. Yeah, somebody does and then throws the, it overboard. And, yeah, and then But it's like first of all, rope is precious right yeah, now on exactly. this lifeboat. Um
0: So is that So is that mink coat and
2: other stuff, <laughs> you know? And Mom jerky tastes just as good as baby jerky. (laughs) Hey,
0: Lord, use it it to catch some fish. Yeah. Is that terrible? That's
1: terrible.
2: That's pretty terrible. It's terrible, but also realistic when you're on a lifeboat. You have no idea how long you're going to be at sea. But you might also investigate this situation a little bit to see if it looks like she was beat up before she was thrown overboard.
1: Or if it's a noose that's around her neck. Yeah.
2: Yeah. There's all sorts of things that they, they should have looked at at least before just cutting the rope and throwing her over. Ritt apologizes for not preventing the apparent suicide, but admits that it was pitch black last night and he had no hope of preventing it. We get a quick shot of Willie consulting a compass and then tucking it back into his pocket. Now, it's also possible that all Willie did was untie her so that she could do this to herself. Yeah. Or just- So it's like a a combination of suicide and betrayal.
1: Or he, I mean, for all we know, he could have just watched her, you know, wriggle loose. Right. But we'll never
2: know. Right. Right.
0: I mean, we will know that he is fine with decreasing the number of people in this ship. Yes,
2: that makes sense. That morning, they begin to work on a sail to help them coast to safety, and Ritt assigns everyone a position on the ship. He says Sparks is in charge of navigation. George, a.k.a. Joe, is the head of commissary. Porter is in charge of the ship's log, and she demands publication rights, well, including the Scandinavian.
1: Well, you calling him George. I, I'm about to go uh, into it. yeah.
2: Rich will continue to call Joe George over the course of the film, and this is a reference to George Pullman, who owned a line of passenger trains. Because it was staffed by recently emancipated slaves, it was commonplace for these stewards to accept their boss's name as their own. That way passengers would automatically know the name of a steward and could address them specifically.
0: How is it addressing somebody specifically when you use a generic name? Because you name? don't
2: have to say, uh, sir, guy, person. Well, you, don't you don't have can to say, be respectful. <laughs> if, you, if you say yeah. George, they'll turn around and they'll help you. Amusingly, this changed over time, not because it's crazy racist to name a man's employees after him, but because rich guys named George didn't like being affiliated with black people and demanded that stewards be addressed by their own names presented on name tags.
1: Wow. So progressive.
2: Yeah. Great, great for them. Mackenzie is in charge of sick bay, and Sparks points out that Ritz seems to have elected himself skipper to make all these decisions alone. Kovac is still advocating for tossing Willie overboard.
0: What are you afraid of? He's one against seven.
2: It was eight yesterday, or have you forgotten?
1: It could have been nine, but...
2: Yeah, but we killed that baby. Is that what you mean? The baby? Yeah, I that's what I mean. Eight and a half? It's <laughs> a Fellini movie all of a sudden? Gus reads a newspaper, and on the side of the page facing us, we see an ad for Reduso, the sensational new obesity slayer, and the accompanying before and after photos are both of director Alfred Hitchcock, who, as we discussed in our Frenzy review, made a habit of small cameos in his films. His initial intent was to play a floating body, just as we saw him later in the trailer for Frenzy. The weight loss product Reduso would be referenced again in Hitchcock's Rope four years later. Gus is reading an article about a crew stranded at sea for 80 days. Then he tells the story of his dance accomplishments, including an 80-hour marathon dance. At the end, his girl, Rosie, went right to another club because she wanted to dance more. Gus worries his leg injury might take him out of the game and that Rosie might ditch him for Al Magarulian, a rival dancer who she knew first. Porter hands Kovac an expensive piece of jewelry asking him to fix it because it's like oh you worked on a boat you can Mm -hmm. fix clasps right (laughs) yep he's surprisingly familiar with her work and complains that she doesn't get enough out of her own perspective in her writing they raise the sail and Rit asks the navigation head sparks to decide on a course they can't even agree which direction is which let alone which one they should be headed in and willie suggests a direction Kovac thinks it's a trap and doesn't want to use the Nazi's directions. For some reason, everyone else on the boat endorses Willy's plan, but when Kovac points out that Ritt is just a rich dude who doesn't know about ships, he suggests a new election to decide on a skipper. Porter thinks that a guy who worked in the bowels of a ship is no match for a captain, which she assumes Willy to be, despite his claims. He wasn't the captain,
0: wasn't he? The
1: Capitaine?
2: He accidentally responds to her calling him the captain, and for some reason, this is all the proof everyone needs that this German is trustworthy in leading them to safety. Yeah. (laughs) Like, what? He just fucking lied to us, and that means that he shot our ship on purpose to kill all of us.
1: And gave the order to shoot- To other people to do it. (laughs) Well, and and to shoot the lifeboats.
2: Yeah. He's a monster. He just admitted to you he's a monster, and you're like, see- He's a monster who's controlled a ship before.
0: No, see, he's, he's a qualified monster.
2: Oh, okay, that's true. <laughs> the devil, you know, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> this reminds me of the, the SNL sketch that you shared. <laughs> with Christopher Walken is when they're holding the election to decide who's going to be the new captain of the Yeah, ship. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Enough of this guy. Boo! You threw our ore at a seagull. I can't help it. They're so close. They're like flying optical illusions.
1: (laughs) That was our last order. There's nothing to stop the seagulls attacking now.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Gus, Sparks, Mackenzie, and Joe quickly endorse Kovac as skipper. Willie warns that the direction Sparks is recommending will take them further into the ocean and away from Bermuda where they're trying to go. As they adjust the sail, the boom sweeps Porter's typewriter into the ocean. She mourns all the things she's lost so far, her camera, her coat, and the typewriter. Kovac challenges Rit to a game of cards using a deck he just made from Porter's Extra Blank Papers. She asks him about all the tattoos of initials on his chest, and he says they were all women, including right in the middle it says BM really big, which I've seen cited as a toilet reference because Hitchcock has a toilet reference in so many of his films.
0: Oh, really? Yeah. See how many are there? One, two, three, four, five. Remind me to show you the rest of them sometime.
2: Mackenzie admits to Sparks that she always had a fear of blood, and she's surprised she ended up in medicine.
1: So, let me ask a question. Yeah. Were they sailing to England or from England? To England.
2: To England from New York.
1: To to England. From New York. Yeah. So, it seems to me that the, the, the best course of action, then, wouldn't be to try to hit an island that's a
2: small point, versus... It depends on where they are. Yeah, I guess... If they had to take the South Atlantic...
1: Yeah, it it just seems like pointing the boat towards west, you'd be more likely to run into other ships.
2: Yeah, well, someone also says something about going to Bermuda anyway. Like, their plan was to meet someone in Bermuda. Right, it's I like think the, was that was that a, a coaling
1: station or something.
2: Yeah, so maybe they're close enough to Bermuda that they were going to refill there and then mm. go to New York, and that's where they got attacked.
0: Bermuda doesn't seem to be on the way between New York and England, though.
2: Well, you don't go straight, though, in a boat or, like, even in a plane, you go over the North Pole when you're going to to London from, like, Los Angeles, because there's just... there's currents that you have to stay in. Sparks admits that when you're under attack like this, it's really frightening the first time, but this isn't his first rodeo. Mackenzie confesses that she's glad the ship was torpedoed for some reason, and everyone is very upset by the comment, which she doesn't get a chance to explain here. Gus complains his bandages are too tight, and when Mackenzie takes them off, Willie identifies the resulting mess as a gangrene-infected wound. He insists an amputation is necessary to save Gus's life. Mackenzie is not comfortable performing an amputation, but Willie is, with the patient's permission. Gus rejects the offer, not because Willie's a German, but because he can't dance without his leg.
0: Don't be a sap, Gus. You don't understand. Sure I do. Rosie. What's Rosie got to do with this? Everything. If I lose my leg,
2: I lose Rosie. You're going to lose the leg either way, so... You only have things to gain here. Kovac and Porter suggest that if Rosie leaves him for losing a leg, then he deserves better. They keep referring to Rosie as that kind of woman.
0: I don't know Rosie, but I know women. Some of my best friends are women, and one of them's that kind of a. What kind of a? Well, an independent creature who lives her own life.
2: Porter tells him that if he dies of gangrene, he will break Rosie's heart especially when she learns that he didn't accept the surgery because he didn't trust her not to leave him. Gus changes his mind and agrees to the operation, and Porter gives him a bottle of brandy to prepare. Willie washes his hands, and they collect the necessary tools. There must be a bit of a time jump here, because Gus is instantly wasted. It seems like it happens over the course of like five seconds. Like there's one shot where he's sober, and without cutting, he's suddenly drunk.
1: Well, I guess we can also assume that they probably haven't and rationing their water yeah so it
2: it would affect w- him quickly but not yeah. this quick yeah I agree before they get started Gus asks for a kiss from Porter and she obliges Gus asks Joe to play some music and skips the first song preferring the second song don't sit under the apple tree with anyone else but me the passengers hold their hands up to keep the lighter out of the wind while they heat up a knife to perform the surgery with right before they begin Gus punches Kovac in the face for some reason, I guess because of what he said about Rosie, calling her that kind of woman. The wind kicks up just as they get started and Sparks does his best to keep the boat steady. Sparks notices Rit is about to vomit and calls to Joe to get him pointed overboard so he doesn't throw up in their boat. We end the surgery scene with Kovac tossing one of Gus's boots onto the floor of the boat. We dissolve to later and we get another shot of Willie with his compass. He tells the rest of the passengers, through Porter, that without a compass, he can't be certain of anything, but he thinks they're close to Bermuda. After some more arguing in German, Willie admits to Porter, for some reason, that they aren't headed for Bermuda, but Kovacs still insists they are. When he asks all the passengers for their opinions of which way to go, they all suggest following Willie's recommendation. Kovac accepts this ruling and defers to Willie's expertise. That night, Porter is talking with Mackenzie about her jewelry, specifically a bracelet her first husband gave her and reminds Mackenzie what she said about being glad the ship was torpedoed. Mackenzie is immediately backtracking. It sounds like she wanted to die because she was in love with a married man.
0: Of course, I don't know who the guy is, but I know men, especially married men. Some of my best friends.
2: Mackenzie moves to the back of the boat to tell Sparks her whole life story about the married man she was in love with, and he sees how hopeless it all was. As they talk more, it occurs to Sparks that he can see the wrong planets on the horizon if the boat was pointed toward Bermuda, as Willie claims.
1: This was another thing that bothered me, because this isn't their first night. Right, and And
2: every day the sun goes over them, and they should notice which way is east and which way is west.
1: Yeah. Uh, it, It really bothered me that, I mean... I can understand, like you know, oh, I worked in an engine room, but you have to have some kind of maritime skills yeah. to work on a ship.
2: Period. I mean, maybe
0: not during wartime. Sometimes mm, you get desperate, you know. Yeah. And I, I, but I get it that
2: that's why Sparks has been through three shipwrecks in his life <laughs> because he's just a fucking idiot.
0: But when the sun's like straight overhead, which happened when they first, yeah, right. We're but then two hours out. later, it right. wasn't straight overhead. Then you figure it out when <laughs> yeah. the sun starts to move.
2: Yeah, and and. Especially with a mast on your ship. It's like you have a shadow to work with to determine yeah. the direction. For some reason, they wait a few more hours before bringing Willie's scheme to everyone's attention. Rit thinks Willie has a compass and Mackenzie mentions to Porter that he keeps checking what looks like a watch but still asks other people for the time. They ask Joe, the expert pickpocket, to check Willie's pockets as he sleeps and after some hesitation, he reminds them that he swore off picking pockets. Porter says it's nothing to be embarrassed about. Some of my best friends are pickpockets. Joe is ordered to mug the man and comes back with the compass. Kovac opens a knife intending to stab Willie for his ploy. Everyone else talks him out of it while a storm kicks up. The waves get crazier and crazier until Sparks is literally thrown overboard, but then miraculously, a second wave throws him back into the boat. (laughs) Willie orders them to bail the boat before it sinks, and Porter suddenly realizes he's speaking English. The mast snaps and the sail collapses into the ocean along with Porter's suitcase. She's lost another prized possession. As waves continue to crash, Kovac holds Porter tight and says they should die together. We might as well to die together, right, Hours later, the sea is calm and Willie is rowing and singing in German while Rit plays Joe's flute. Porter is sleeping in Kovac's lap on the opposite end of the lifeboat. Everyone volunteers to take a turn rowing for Willie but he says he's fine. They're surprised at his endurance, and suspect it's a result of him being part of the master race. Willie asks how Gus Smith is doing, but uses the last name Schmidt, which Gus objects to. Gus starts asking people baseball questions, but then they realize he's kind of out of it when he suggests he might try to go to today's game with Rosie. Willie keeps making requests of German songs he has taught to writ on this flute, and the man dutifully plays them for the Nazi liar. At the back of the boat, Porter and Kovac play a bit of footsie, and Gus sneaks a mug into his obsolete boot, intending to dip it over the side and collect seawater to drink. Sparks keeps untying Mackenzie's hair to annoy her because he thinks it's funny, and it is. (laughs) Mackenzie notices (laughs) Gus's scheme and tosses the seawater overboard. Porter admits to Kovac that she liked what he said in the storm about dying together. Die together like
0: that? Dying together is even more personal than living together.
2: She confesses that she grew up in the same neighborhood as him but she married a rich man and so she adds her initials with lipstick to his chest and they kiss. He tosses her off and walks away to play cards with Rit. They get on the subject of food, and as Ritt describes a bunch of luxury meals, Porter starts to go crazy. She blames him for their whole situation, but Kovac diagnoses it as a clear result of hunger. Porter eventually breaks down, and Gus grabs a hold of his mug again. Kovac is winning lots of money from Ritt, and starts to wager Ritt's own factories in the games. Kovac is keeping a tally of his winnings on the boat bench. Right when Rit thinks he's finally won the whole pot back, a sudden breeze tosses all the cards overboard, and he's furious.
0: See Rittenhouse. What have you got?
2: I've got pot! Oh!
0: That was my pot. You couldn't possibly beat me. I have a full house. And I had four deuces. How do I know you had four deuces?
2: He accuses Kovac of somehow orchestrating the breeze when suddenly it's raining, so they try to collect rainwater in the sail.
0: But he's not just accusing him of the breeze. He's accusing him of marking, of marking the cards. The cards. Yeah. Like it's worse than that.
2: But if he was winning the pot back at the end, then obviously Kovac wasn't marking the cards. I mean. Unless he orchestrated the wind. Like that would be the whole point of that is to prove that that the cards were legitimate is that, oh, well, you had the winning hand though and then they all got blown overboard.
0: Yeah, I'm just saying, like, I mean, he made the cards. Like, these are just bits of paper with, you know, words written on them. So I,
2: I think RIT is also forgetting that the first time that Kovac heard RIT say anything, he was saying, I want a bunch of money, and it fell in the water, and Kovac immediately gave him a 20 back that he found in yeah, the water. Yeah, that's true. And it's that's like, fair. this is an honorable guy. He's not trying to cheat anyone unfairly out of their money. Yeah. Unfortunately, it only rains for about four seconds, and, disappointed, Gus dips his mug overboard to drink seawater instead.
1: You just start licking that sail. Yeah. That's, that's
2: what yeah. I'd be doing. I'd do that anyway. <laughs> sail, liquor. Sales. sail liquor. Love sails. <laughs> sail liquor. Liquor sail. In the middle of the night, Gus seems intoxicated by the salt water and blathers to Willie as he continues rowing. He notices Willie is sneaking sips of water and tries to tell his sleeping fellow passengers, but nobody listens to him. Willie tells Gus to stay quiet so he doesn't wake everyone, and then points to Rosie off the side of the boat. Gus prepares to leave and join Rosie, and they shake hands to part ways. Gus asks if there's any way that he can repay Willie, and Willie suggests that Gus change his name back to Schmidt. He agrees to for the last five seconds of his life. When Gus leans for her, Willie pushes the man into the sea. Gus cries for help from Sparks, but Sparks sleeps through it until Gus has completely disappeared under the water. Everyone is very mad at Willie for not bringing it to their attention that Gus was drowning, but he says it would have been meaner to save the crazed man. The best way to help him was to let him go. I had no right to stop him, even if I wanted to. Sparks somehow recalls that Gus was talking about Willie having water while he screamed for help. They notice Willie has tears in his eyes and sweat on his brow. Joe pulls the bottle of water out of Gus's shirt and it is dropped to the deck and shattered. Willie admits he has food pills, too, which explains why he's been so energetic compared to the rest of them. Willie admits to the group that they are not headed for Bermuda, but a supply ship, and then everyone freaks out and throws him overboard, like of course they would. Yeah. As Willie fights to stay on board, Rit cracks him over the head multiple times with Gus's boot, the only thing they have left of him. I kind of thought it would be funny if, as Willie disappeared beneath the waves, his last words were, Tell Rosie it wasn't gangrene. Like he just cut off Gus's leg for no reason and uh, could have survived the trip? Rit is flabbergasted that this man they had extended so much courtesy to would try to kill them. First he tried to kill
0: us all with his torpedoes. Nevertheless, we faced him out of the sea, took him aboard, shared everything we had with him. You never thought he'd been grateful? All he could do was to plot against us. Then he He let poor old Gus die
2: of thirst. What do you do with people like that? They're now stranded at sea with no idea which way to go. Sensing the situation's hopelessness, Sparks asks Mackenzie to marry him, and she agrees. Porter is furious to see everyone giving up, and Ritz says his only regret is having joined a mob to kill a Nazi that betrayed them. Porter says that they all joined a mob by letting the Nazi mislead them this whole time. Worth pointing out, too, that when they decide to kill the nazi the only person who doesn't participate in the murder is joe yeah Yeah. he's just standing back and letting them do what they do porter suggests catching fish with her bracelet as bait it's like why didn't you suggest this days ago Mm -hmm. weeks ago
0: you know you cut a leg off that you could have been using as bait yeah like you didn't need to just toss that away
2: yeah they quickly catch the attention of a large fish and pull it on board with the bracelet like literally three minutes later they have a fish in their hands but before they can start taking bites of this fish while it's still alive joe points out a ship on the horizon and they drop the fish and porter's bracelet overboard she has officially lost everything and she's back to where she was when she lived in kovicstown she laughs crazed at her situation unfortunately the ship they saw is the german supply ship and a boat comes out to collect them but porter is willing to settle for this rescue
1: well some of my best friends are in concentration camps. <laughs> and I like a the German calls out to him, Hallo! He's what like, did, what he did he say? say? He's
2: like, oh, he said they have coffee or something. <laughs> what? Suddenly, a flashlight signal from the supply ship orders the boat back, and the shipwrecked passengers are abandoned at sea. An American ship on the horizon begins firing on the supply ship and the German lifeboat. Sparks and Kovac frantically row the lifeboat out of the path of the German supply ship the supply ship is quickly struck and sunk by the American attack. If they hadn't killed Willie, they might have found this supply ship sooner and already boarded in time to die on it.
0: Well, and isn't this showing them that the Americans are just as bad shooting the shooting lifeboat? at lifeboats? Yeah. yeah.
2: Kovac suspects the American ship is now only 20 minutes away and everybody celebrates a bit. Porter starts doing her makeup so she looks nice for the Americans.
0: Oh, here, yeah, darling. No, darling. You first. Yes, darling, yes, because one of my best
2: friend is in the Navy. Hmm, nice, mighty nice. Ritt promises Kovac all the money he won at cards, and Porter suggests he spend it replacing all of her things he's thrown overboard. Suddenly, another pair of hands come climbing over the outside of the boat. Another German, but now a much younger one. Porter thinks he's too young to be a captain, and they should treat this man better than Willie, but the kid quickly has a gun on them. He's helpless, he's only a baby. A baby has a toy. I should have frisked him. They manage to wrestle the gun away and throw it overboard, and the kid asks a question.
0: He says, aren't you going to kill me? I'll have to tie this up till the ship's doctor takes care of it. Aren't you going to kill me? What are you going to do with people like that? I don't know. I was thinking of Mrs. Igley and her baby. And Gus. Well, maybe they can answer that.
2: As the passengers await the arrival of the American ship, we fade to black. The end. Lifeboat, everybody. Uh, it's a good one. I like it. I like the characters. I feel yeah. like it all makes sense. Yeah. Um, I was actually surprised that there wasn't some kind of a turn that the Nazi ended up being a good guy or helping somebody in some way. And you could argue that, oh, well, he steered the ship to safety when the storm got crazy and he performed this surgery on Gus's leg, but I'm convinced that the surgery was not necessary, and he was doing it <laughs> to demoralize people.
0: Mm.
2: Um, but yeah, I I really liked it. I I thought. But
0: he didn't propose the surgery.
2: He was the one who said it was gangrene. Mm-hmm. But if it wasn't gangrene, they wouldn't have had to amputate the leg.
0: But I guess the. Uh, she was she was just a nurse, but th- but she was the one that unwrapped it and said that the leg looked bad.
2: Yeah. Well, she also said that she has a difficult time with blood, and so him taking off the bandages was just to to show a really nasty wound that might have been okay if it had just been bandaged up and and you know dressed the bandages yeah. often enough. But Willie was the one who said that's gangrene, and you need to cut that leg off, or you're not going to survive. And if that was true which I think the film implies that it's true. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm taking a leap here. Um, Then that's the only true thing that Willie said. (laughs) He lied about being the captain. He lied about which way they were going. He lied about what they were headed towards. He lied about whether he had a compass. He lied about whether people jumped off the boat themselves or he shoved them overboard. Yeah. Everything we heard him say and knew the truth of, we knew he was lying. So that's why I think it wasn't gangrene and he cut off this guy's leg just to fuck with him. And that Gus would have survived if he hadn't gone through with the amputation, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, um, thumbs up for sure. Yeah, this one. I I, I don't it. think a Hitchcock movie is going to get a thumbs down, really.
0: I definitely give it a thumbs up. I was fully engaged the whole time. I I, I liked the characters, and um, I I think it was it was interesting. It what it didn't end up going like you said. It didn't end up going the way I thought it was going to go. Yeah, but it makes sense for the way it went, considering that we were still dealing with nazis Nazis at the time
2: directly yeah that's why i was like watching the movie i was very surprised when the second nazi pulled out a gun and i was like wow they're they're really like hitting the nazis hard in this movie and and i would have expected that hitchcock to try and subvert our expectations and have one or the other nazi be a good guy yeah to break everyone's like prejudice but it's like you can't really do that which is probably why they brought ben hecht on to be like hey you need to change the ending the Americans all have to survive on an American ship and every Nazi has to try and murder everyone. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I love that the controversy was the the Nazis are too nice and it's like, the Nazi was the monster the whole fucking yeah. time. <laughs> I, I think if anyone was upset about something that really the problem is that the Nazi was smarter than the Americans for yeah. most right. of the movie and they were like, why is he so much smarter than them? That's that's the part that I can see people getting upset about.
0: Right.
1: Uh, it's a thumbs up for me for sure. Uh, I, I there's so many of Hitchcock's movies that I have not seen. Yeah, that's I'm ashamed true. To say, and so this was this was a delight that I had you know I had not seen. Uh,
2: it, this is also by far the oldest movie we've covered on the show, which is which is yeah. fun yeah. to do. What's
0: the next oldest one we've done? Have we done anything before the '70s? No,
2: this is our first like before 1970 title.
1: Mm. Uh, but yeah, I, I thought uh, all the characters were great, really well, really well rounded. Like I I kept. I was actually expecting more people to die.
2: Yeah, I kind of uh, was too, because there's so many on the boat like, by the end.
1: And and not to, I didn't expect it to be a and then there were none kind of situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I expected at least like one or two to get picked off. More.
2: Well, by- I really suspected that when the kid pulled out a gun after they had had a second debate on whether they could trust this Nazi. Right. I figured that this guy was going to pull out a gun and shoot Joe just uh, joe and then it would be like he didn't even kill the first the Nazi, and would, he's the yeah. only one who got killed by this nazi after everyone said we should throw him overboard and mm-hmm. then people said no don't do it and then he would have killed joe yeah but that's not what happened yeah and that might be because they were just trying to clean it up make it a little bit happier of an ending because it does end on a very like positive note
1: yeah um there were a couple of questions that i had they they mentioned that they were barely able to get out a distress signal and I don't know if this ship that's arriving is arriving in response or just was a happenstance.
2: I mean, it seems to be a battleship; it's a navy ship. I yeah. don't think it's just a rescue mission.
1: Um, but also, I still question. I, I'm still like fuzzy about where they are in the ocean and why they're trying to head to Bermuda, and and how close they are, you know, in relationships to that, because Bermuda is really far out there. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, but it still seems to me like you're going to have a better chance of. Hitting a cargo ship or patrol ships along the coast. If you head back towards the United States, yeah, just
0: aim, and and you have a much wider area to yeah. to actually hit some land yeah. as opposed to Bermuda, which is just a tiny little
1: yeah. island. Yeah, you could you could miss Bermuda very easily as opposed to just sailing west and just eventually, west. <laughs> you'll yeah. hit something.
2: Yeah, there's a lot just, of land in every direction. You just, just have take to the get
0: Columbus there. route. Just head that way.
2: You'll well, hit something. I uh. <laughs> I was recommended. I was talking to uh, my coworker Perla about. The, oh, we're doing a lifeboat, and she recommended as a double feature with it a movie called Seven Waves Away. It's also called Abandoned Ship or Seven Days from Now, um, and it's it came out a little bit later. It's like 13 years later. It's a British film, and it's Tyrone Power is like the captain, uh, or he's the skipper. He's in charge of the lifeboat full of people. It's another shipwreck at sea, and. Um, I think but in in that example it wasn't because they they encountered an enemy, they they literally hit a mine in the ocean. Mm. And uh so in in this version of the story, the lifeboat has like 50 people in it and it's it's overloaded and there's a bunch of people that have to swim around it and they're trading off because too many people in the boat would cause it to sink, but they're constantly right. bailing it anyway. And there's also sharks in the water. Okay, which is that much scarier. But in that situation, they come to terms with the fact that their only option is to sail 1,500 miles to Africa, which they decided would take 50 days of constant rowing. Oh, God. And it's a nightmare. But it's, it's a really interesting film. And eventually, they get to a point where supplies are running so low that Tyrone Power, as like the man in charge, decides, we we can't support everyone here. So anyone who's not pulling their weight, we're going to kill that person. And he's not putting it to a vote, he's not asking for volunteers, he says, I will be the decider, because someone has to, and he starts killing people off one at a time, and people object to some of the killings, some of them make perfect sense that almost nobody could argue with it, but then there's a really terrible storm one night, and if they want to survive more than like 48 hours past this storm, they need to kill more than half of who's left and so he just starts killing people willy-nilly this guy's dead this guy's dead shove him off get him out of here and the next morning there the sea has calmed down and everyone's like we couldn't have survived for very long if you didn't do that you're the best captain ever thank you so much and then a fucking rescue ship shows up on the horizon and they're all like but we we only did that because you had a gun and yeah. this is all your fault, it was all your decision, you said it before, Like they just immediately turn on him. Right. So that course. it's like, he did what he had to do to save everybody, but it turns out he didn't have to do that to save everybody. And uh, it's yeah, really- Yeah, but you don't know
0: that. You don't know that until it happens. Right,
2: but it's really great. Um, and I just spoiled the whole thing, so you don't need to watch it. But, <laughs> um, but you should definitely watch it. <laughs> but you should, uh, I, I think it's a good double feature with Lifeboat, they're very similar films. Um, and they 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 discuss a lot of the same things in both movies. Mm-hmm. It's clear that that movie was inspired by this movie. Yeah. Um,
1: I also think about uh, the Simpsons, where Homer, Flanders, and Bart are on the. Yeah. <laughs> where they're trying to catch the fish. Oh right, yeah. You'll thank me when we're frying up a big
2: fish. <laughs> <laughs> um. Actually, now, now that I think about it, too, that that other movie that I mentioned uh, is also uh, based on a true story. Life Pod no not like i mean it will be based on a true story it just hasn't happened yet our director here was alfred hitchcock so far we've reviewed one of his last director credits frenzy he's probably one of the best known directors of all time he's celebrated as the master of suspense he directed the 39 steps rebecca spellbound rope strangers on a train dial m for murder rear window vertigo north by northwest psycho and the birds among many others He also created the anthology series Alfred Hitchcock Presents, which ran for a whopping 268 episodes. John Steinbeck wrote the story uh, or the manuscript that was adapted into the script. He's an author best known for Cannery Row, East of Eden, Of Mice and Men, and The Grapes of Wrath, all of which have been adapted into celebrated films as well. The other writer, Joe Swirling, who did most of the adapting, also wrote The Pride of the Yankees and got an Oscar nomination. It's a Wonderful Life and Guys and Dolls. He has many uncredited writing jobs. Writer Ben Hecht came in for the ending. He wrote Notorious in the original Scarface. He goes uncredited for his work in the 67 Casino Royale. We discussed him in our review of For Your Eyes Only. He has lots and lots of uncredited writing jobs on big titles like Stagecoach, Prisoner of Zenda, Gone with the Wind, His Girl Friday, and Gilda. The music here was from Hugo Friedhofer. He's the composer of An Affair to Remember and The Best Years of Our Lives, and finally Airport Uncredited somehow. Cinematographer Glenn McWilliams didn't recognize much of his. He was the replacement brought in to replace cinematographer Arthur C. Miller, who also lit The 36 White Fang, Young Mr. Lincoln, The Mark of Zorro, Do you guys recall the last time we saw footage from The Mark of Zorro?
0: Was it in the Zorro? The Gay Blade? The Gay Blade starts Mm. with clips
2: of the original film, yeah. Because it's a pseudo-sequel to that film. How Green Was My Valley, The 46, Razor's Edge, Gentleman's Agreement, and A Letter to Three Wives. Editor Dorothy Spencer, before this she cut Stagecoach, To Be or Not to Be, The 43, Heaven Can Wait, The Ghost in Mrs. Muir, Cleopatra, And her last two editing credits were for disaster films Earthquake and The Concord, Airport 79. Tallulah Bankhead played Connie Porter. She also played a character named Black Widow on the original Batman series. This was her first film in 12 years, except for an appearance as herself in 1943's Stage Door Canteen. Later she was Mrs. Trefoil in Die, Die, My Darling. And after she caught pneumonia on the set, hitchcock wanted to reward her for her perfect performance with the gift of a puppy which he had pre-named alfred hitchcock what <laughs> she's like here's a puppy it's also me <laughs> so i guess it depends weird. on the type of dog yeah hitchcock or spaniel <laughs> I have no idea. for some <laughs>
0: reason i imagine him being like uh like an english bulldog
2: yeah maybe <laughs> William Bendix played Gus Smith. He was Fred Kelly in 17 episodes of The Overland Trail and Chester A. Riley in 219 episodes of The Life of Riley. He was also Buzz Wanchek in George Marshall's The Blue Dahlia. Walter Slezak played Willie. He was Melchior Inksa in Cornered, Yakov in Inspector General, and Arnett in Born to Kill. He's also played the Clock King on the original Batman series. Mary Anderson played Alice McKenzie. Her first credit was Maybelle Merriweather in Gone with the Wind. We saw her last as Old Lady in Music Store in Cheech and Chong's next movie. John Hodiak played John Kovac. He was Ned Trent in The Harvey Girls. You remember The Harvey Girls? That was a fun one. And Jarvis in Battleground. Henry Hall played Charles J. Rittenhouse. He was Henry Cameron in The Fountainhead, Dr. Wilfred Glendon in Werewolf of London, and Doc Banton in High Sierra. Heather Angel played Mrs. Higley. She was the voice of Alice's sister in Disney's Alice in Wonderland. She was also Miss Darling in Disney's Peter Pan and Ethel the Maid in Hitchcock's Suspicion. Hume Cronin played Stanley Garrett. He was also in Brewster's Millions as Rupert Horn. He appears in Cocoon, Cocoon 2, Batteries Not Included, The World According to Garp, and so far on the show, Honky Tonk Freeway, all of which also feature his wife, Jessica Tandy. Canada Lee played Joe Spencer. He was the first cast in the film, better known for his stage work, and he shows up again as Ben Chaplin in Body and Soul. I think that's everything for Lifeboat. Thanks again to Carlos Mota for their generous contribution to the show. If there's any title you'd like us to review, our top Patreon tier includes a custom review of any pre-1980 title. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year, and we can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing whatever you choose. We leave you now with a trailer for Lifeboat.
0: What's the matter with us? We not only let the Nazi do our rowing for us, but our thinking. I thought this boat was abandoned. Not by me, it wasn't. Keep going, Kovac. There's more people out there. You see there?
1: Give me the baby. Where
0: would he come from?
1: Sea member? Well, I never saw him before. do Not know problem.
0: Throw him off. Have you got out of your mind? Throw the Nazi buzzard overboard. That's out of the question. It's against the law. Who's law? We're on our own here. We can make our own law. She's out there. <laughs> Ye, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Although it will, thy rod and thy staff will comfort me. You fools! I'm thinking about yourselves! Think of the boat!
1: There's a piece in here about some people that were adrift in a lifeboat for 80 days. Say, maybe we can beat that record.